0: Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to open your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at it, your spirit to come upon us and show us what you would have us to see. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, last week we, we saw a battle between Israel and the Philistines and David got another big victory which didn't make Saul happy. Saul sent his, his men out to watch David's house so that they could kill him. Uh, we saw the lie that Michael told that got her father angry at David because of her lie. Um, we saw David flee to Samuel, and Saul went out to find them. And if you remember, all the people that Saul sent ended up prophesying and, and getting filled with the Spirit, and, got, and Saul got filled with the Spirit and started prophesying, and that's where we left off last, last week in chapter 19. So in chapter 20, verse 1, And David fled from Nihoth in Ramoth, and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father, that he seeks my life? And he said unto him, God forbid that you shall die. Behold, my father will do nothing, either great or small, but that he will show it me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. David swore moreover and said, "Your father certainly knows that I have found grace in your eyes." And said, "Let not Jonathan know, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as my soul lives, there is but a step between me and death." Then said Jonathan unto David, "Whatsoever your soul desires, I will even do it for you." And David said to Jonathan, "Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the king at, with the king at meat." But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field until the third day at even. If your father at all miss me, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me that he might run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all his, the family. <coughs> if you say it is well, your servant shall, shall have peace, but if he is very angry, then shall evil be determined by him. Therefore you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought... Your servant unto a covenant of the Lord with you, notwithstanding, if there be in me iniquity, slay me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you, for if I would know certainly that evil were determined by my father to come upon you, then I would <coughs> not. Then would not I tell it you? Then said David to Jonathan, Who shall who shall tell me in what? if your father's answer answers you roughly. We're going to stop there because I want to talk about what's going on so far uh, before we get into the little thing they're playing. Uh, David leaves, in the start of this verse, David leaves Samuel in Naoth, Ramoth, and he goes to see Jonathan. Okay, remember, Jonathan and David are best friends. <laughs> All right, they they are just deeply connected and They've made a covenant that uh, Jonathan understands David's going to be the next king of Israel. He's willing to let David be king. And even though that means he is crown prince is not going to be king of Israel. So he's all set. If, he, if, they, uh, if David takes the king and he lives, he's ready just to step down and get out of David's way. He understands that David's been an anointed as king. He understands that David is, is getting everything he does good that God's on him. And the humility that Jonathan has is that he's willing to just let David take over. Now, what would happen when push comes to shove and (laughs) it's actually time to give up? We don't know. But in his heart, he's ready to to give it up. And he and David are very good friends. And David asked Jonathan, what is it that I've done? Why is your father so angry? All right, Because he doesn't fully understand it. All he knows is I'm serving the king with my whole heart. I go out all, to all the battles, he asks me. I win the battles. I come back, and the king is mad at me. He goes, I've married his daughter, and he's still mad at me. You know, he's, everything he says, you know, everything I do, the king doesn't like. And the king is so full of envy and jealousy, you know, it doesn't matter what David does. And David said, you know, he's basically saying, Jonathan, I've, I'm trying my best to please your father. I'm trying my best to do what is going to help him and serve him. And you know, there's times when we do this, when we go through this very process where we have somebody that is jealous of us or, not, or envious of us, and no matter what you do, you're not going to please them. Uh, you could be the best, you, it could be a boss that you're trying to, to work for, and you could be the best employee that's ever been in that company, and they're, and they're afraid that you're going to try to take their job. And this is what Saul's, you know, Saul knows that David's going to take his job eventually. And he really does. He sees that David's success as a possible way for David just to take the kingdom away from him. He doesn't fully understand David's heart. David's heart is that he's going to wait until God takes Saul out and makes him king. He's not, he's not looking to step up against, against him. Jonathan also is kind of blinded. You see in verse two, he says, "God forbid that you shall die. Behold, my father will do nothing, whether great or small, but that he will show it to me. Why should my father hide this from me?" (laughs) David's got a kind of a blind. uh, Jonathan's got a blind spot as well. He's not seeing that his father's been chasing David. He's not seeing that his father's trying to kill him. Uh, Maybe he doesn't even realize that David, you know, may not have been there when Saul threw the spear at. David, the javelin, David to try to pin him to the wall. Uh, but he's got this little thing. He goes, my father's not trying to kill you. If he was, he would have told me. And David's answer, we see this. David understands what's going on in the court a little better than Jonathan seems to. And David answered him in verse 3. He says, your father certainly knows that you that I have found grace in your eyes and says, let not Jonathan know lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives, and as my soul lives, there is but one step between me and death. And basically saying, Jonathan, your dad knows that you, that you like me and that you would not, you know, you, you, would, you would warn me. So he's not telling you. How does David know all this? Well, he's been chased around. He's been, they've tried to take him at his house, and he, when he escaped out the window, Saul's chased him to, to where Samuel was. He's thrown the, the javelin at David. David's very quickly getting the idea, Saul doesn't like me. Okay, and Saul doesn't like me to the point of he wants me dead. Also, he's the king. If he wants me dead, my life doesn't mean much. Now, David also understands that the king is bound by God's laws, but King Saul does not appear to be too worried about following God's laws. All right, he's already been rejected by God. Remember when he didn't kill all the Amalekites, left the king alive, left left the animals, God says, I have taken the kingdom from you. So Saul already knows that God's not on his side. He knows that the kingdom's going to be lost. Apparently he has heard about David being anointed, or at least he sees how successful David is and how the people are liking him. And remember the song that that really set him off was, Saul has killed his thousand and David is ten thousands. And that really made him mad. You know, what more could he have but my kingdom, he said. So Saul has all this anger and bitterness and hatred toward David, And all David is trying to do is serve the king with his full heart. And yet it doesn't work for David. And this is something that is very important for us. There are times when you can do everything in a righteous, godly way and still have things look bad for you. And still have people not like you and still have things going against you. We see this with David at this point. He's just trying to serve Saul. He's just trying to give Saul all of his honor, all of his service, and Saul's trying to kill him. We saw it with Job. You know, God's testimony of Job is he's a perfect and upright man who hates evil, and all of a sudden he loses everything. You know, goes from the richest man in the, in the place to having nothing. Okay, just because we obey God does not guarantee us that everything is going to work the way we think it should work. Now, all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. God has a plan, and it will be for good. But too many times we look at it and say, this is not good. Now, we've got to be careful about that attitude in our life. When things seem to be going wrong, we need to be careful what our attitude toward it is. And what we see, if, you know, especially those of you who've been reading the biographies and everything, so many times everything turns against these people and they persevere and then they see where God brings them to after. You know, Job, after all the trials, went got back two times everything God took him. Now, that's not what God does to us all the time, but he got back twice as much. David's going to get a whole kingdom. Even though he's going to run for a decade of his life or two, he's going to end up having everything. And we need to be careful how we look at what's going on in our life. Because it is real easy to say, God, if you lost your mind? You don't know what's going on. You, know, you don't know what's going on around me. And look at all these problems I have. And you said everything's supposed to be for good. And nothing but bad's happening to me. And God says, just wait. God's time perspective is not ours. We as humans expect something that if it didn't happen yesterday, it's behind, it's behind already. And we might be really patient and say, okay, God, I'll give you a year or two. And God's saying, well, I'm going to take a decade. I want to see if you're going to persevere and follow me. David takes several decades before he gets what God promised him. Uh, So we need to be very careful about what is our attitude when something doesn't seem to be going the way we think it should go. And that's the key part, the way we think it should go. I've lived long enough that I look back over my life and say some of the things that I thought were the worst parts of my life I look back on and say, God, you really blessed me through all of that. You trained me. You prepared me for this, where I'm at now. You gave me the way to be able to talk to somebody. Even though that was hard, you, you opened doors. You opened doors to help me get stronger. And we need to be aware that some of what's going on is just to help us. And if we don't understand it now, we may never understand it on this earth, but God will show us in heaven what the purpose was. And even if we spent our entire life being miserable, you know, in the physical world, heaven will more than make up for anything that we're going through in this life. But it really comes down to what is our expectation and what is our thoughts. If we think that we are supposed to totally be blessed and always be happy, we haven't read the Bible. (laughs) Jesus said they hated me, they will hate you. Jesus lived perfectly and correctly, and what happened to him, they kept trying to kill him every the entire four years he was ministering until he finally did put him on a cross, all right? So we need to be careful. What is our expectation? Too often we expect, you know, flowers and roses and sunshine and daisies or whatever the term might be, you know. We just expect everything to be perfect. And God says, I've never promised that to you. I've never promised that to anybody, and besides which, we don't grow in those kind of situations. We don't get stronger in that kind of situation. Uh, We've talked about this. If you want to build muscle, you're not going to get it by sitting there thinking about lifting weights. Okay. Well you know God, I think I've lift weights. Yeah, let me let me go through this. Yes. This is what my body's doing. Yes, I'm lifting my arms, I'm picking this up. Yeah, I'm lifting up a ton, God, yes. Yeah, I, you know, or I pick up something like this, a quarter weight, you know. I get curl a quarter a quarter, you know, quarter of a pound all day long and it's not gonna build any muscles. It might build a little bit, but definitely no muscle. Uh, and this is what God is saying. He knows that we need trials in our life to strengthen us. And there's no growth without those strength and those trials. Uh, when we're learning to do something, you know, when we raise a child and we're teaching the child to walk, you Now we all know that the very first time we pick up our child, put him on his feet, and he runs off to the next room without falling, right? <laughs> now that child falls and falls and falls <laughs> and falls a few more times for almost a month or two while they finally learn to stand and walk. And it might even be several months. You know, I don't remember. My kids are past that. But it takes time. And yet, as Christians, we expect to be able to walk with God without ever falling. It doesn't happen. We will fall. We will fail. We will have hard times hit us and knock us over. But those hard times and those falls teach us to be able to stand and and get some strength. And eventually, we're running and dancing and, you know, Learning, learning football or, or karate or whatever, <laughs> whatever you want to term to use that, but we get better. And this is what it takes in our walk. And David is going through hard times, and we can see he's getting a little frustrated, rightfully so. And we all get frustrated when we take our eyes off God. And when we're going through hard times, we take our eyes off God, we get frustrated. And we all know that when we decide that we're going to follow God, life gets all better, right? No, it gets exactly the opposite way. When I'd say, God, I'm going to follow you, all hell breaks loose in my life and people come against me and things come against me and God's saying, are you really going to follow me like you said you're going to follow me? Satan doesn't want us following God, so he's going to throw everything he can that God will let him throw at us to stop us from going forward. And we need to be able to be aware, number one, if we choose to serve God, expect hard times. Every time this church moves forward, things happen in the church. Every time I go forward in my own life, things happen in my life to make life difficult. And God says, okay, you, you said you're going to do this. You decided you're going to do this. Are you going to keep doing it? And we see this in everybody's life. We choose to follow God. We choose to do anything for God, and things get difficult. And uh, we need to, number one, if we expect it, it's not a surprise to us. And we go, okay, God, oh, all right, God, I can, I can get through this. might be harder than I expected and will be harder than I expected. But it, we should never be in a place where we don't expect trials. When we're walking with God, trials are going to happen. I don't know what David expected when he was anointed king. I, didn't know, I don't know if he just felt I was going to go out tomorrow and become king, or I'm sure he didn't expect a decade of being chased by Saul. And uh, we need to be aware of our choices with God are, are going to cause some problems, are going to cause issues, are going to cause issues in our life, and we need to be able to say, God, I choose to follow you, and I'm going to stay moving with you, because God is testing us to see just how far we will go. And Jonathan says, you know, God, you know, there's nothing, and David told him, you know, there's only one step between me and death. If I'm not constantly on my guard watching, I'm going to be dead. And David is, you know, being, this, being a man of war, he's used to having to be able to stay on guard. But at the same time, all of us know there's times when we just want to sit back and say, oh, I can just relax. I don't have to worry about anything. Well, we're in the same place as David, though, in our spiritual walk. All we're on, on this world, there is no time when we can just relax spiritually and say, oh, okay, I'm just going to do Whatever. Because the minute you decide, I'm just going to relax and not think about spiritual things, you will be hit with all kinds of temptation, all kinds of trials. Satan is just waiting for you to sit back and say, I'm not going to do something. I heard one of the pastors this morning talk about, you know, you can never think about nothing. Okay, you're always thinking about something. Now, what that something is may be kind of wandering and and everything, but we're always thinking about something, and if we're not thinking spiritual thoughts, we will think worldly thoughts. It's just a default. That is who we are. If we're not thinking spiritual, the world will come in. And the world has all kinds of ways to come in. You know, pick up a newspaper, pick up a magazine, watch TV, uh, listen to most radio channels, and you'll be filled with the world's way of thinking. It's not hard. Your body itself wants to think the world's thoughts. Yeah. And it's really wonderful. You're getting ready to study the Bible. You wake up in the morning, you want to pray and study the Bible, and all of a sudden you go, I'm really hungry. And all of a sudden, all you can think about is how hungry you are, and not for the spiritual food, <laughs> but you weren't hungry when you were starting. You weren't even planning to eat for, for an hour or so, and now all of a sudden, all you can think about is, I'm so hungry. Or the you, know, you sit down to read your Bible, and you get that phone call from the person who wants to talk for an hour, or, or even if they don't, that phone call alone just puts you right out of the zone that you were in. It is really easy to be taken away from spiritual thoughts if we don't purpose to think them. In 2 Corinthians, Corinthians, we were told, take every thought captive. Okay, God wants us to be in charge of our thoughts and put them under his authority. And if we don't, Satan will make sure we get plenty of opportunities to walk down the path we want to go in anyway. And we'll get trials and temptations. And we've got to be careful of this because Satan is trying to destroy. I know, I, I to my cat me. <laughs> <laughs> And that's exactly it. Sometimes <laughs> it's your Sometimes, And it, yeah. sometimes it's not bad things that take you away from what you're trying to do. It's just not, you're not the spiritual thing. Yeah. And we need to be very careful because we need to be really focused, because it's easy to be drawn away. Our family can draw us away. Our animals can draw us away. Our own lust and and and, and thoughts can take us away. Our our own bodily needs. You know, uh, there's been times I've sat down and all of a sudden you know I've gone to the bathroom. I've I'm all said, get three minutes in, and all of a sudden I go to the bathroom again. Okay, and I know that's kind of you know you know, on the Vogue or something. But literally, literally, those are the things that happen to us. We're all set. We're ready to go study God's Word, and all kinds of strange things will happen trying to pull us away from That's it. That's I'm to get. Everything, no matter what I think, when I will bring this, I'll bring this, I'll bring this, because I think when I sit down, usually something happens like that. <laughs> yeah, and it's our physical, it's Satan, it's, you know, not necessarily Satan himself, but the dem- demonic world but there's all kinds of things that go on for us, and we need to be aware that following God is not easy. It really is not easy to follow God. And I know there's lots of, especially television pastors and everything, will tell you it's really easy to follow God. I don't know what God they're following. It is not easy to follow God. It gets easier the more we do it, okay? The more I devote myself to coming to church, to studying the Word, to prayer, to focusing on him, the easier it gets. The flip side of that is also the desires that come against you are bigger and harder to get you to drag, to drag you away. So every success we make with God will bring in heavier temptation. But we need to be aware that God is saying, I, how much do you trust me? How much do you trust me? Are you going to let your flesh be crucified and follow me? And it takes a lot to follow God. And it starts with the decision. You know, Joshua told the people just before his death, you know, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods on the other side of the water or the gods of the Amorites that you've defeated or God. But choose you this day who you will serve. It is a conscious choice we need to make to serve God. And it's going to be a, cho- a, a choice that is going to be challenged all the time. Sometimes we can be successful. We look at Moses. Most of the time, Moses was fairly successful. He only had three, three and a half million people that were always criticizing him and making complaints all the time. You know, and those few times that he did fall down, very understandable. Uh, and we do know that he had a temper. <laughs> and his temper kept him from going into the promised land. But as I've said, I don't know that it was his temper that kept him from going to the promised land or the fact that he never repented. Because I've shared with you, all he ever did was say, it's your guys' fault and I'm not going to the promised land. He never owned his own own failure and and repented of it. And uh, we see here this whole battle going on. It's a spiritual battle going on with David and Saul. Saul's had the kingdom taken away from him. He's living in his flesh. He doesn't want to lose the kingdom. Knows he's going to lose the kingdom because he knows God doesn't, doesn't lie. But he figures that if he can kill David somehow, he'll get to keep the kingdom. He doesn't realize that God would just raise up another person who might not be as honorable as David, who would actually take the kingdom from him. So he's in a big, big bind and you know, Saul, so, uh, Jonathan, David just tells Jonathan, you know, you don't really know your father knows knows your heart better than you realize he does. And then Jonathan goes, well, what do you want me to do? <laughs> now, we see here in this next statement that David's not any, very much more honest than Michael was in the previous chapter. Remember, in the previous chapter, when Saul sends people to, to. She, she originally told him that David's sick, he can't get out of bed, and Saul said, "Oh, okay, I want you guys to go back and bring the whole bed. I don't care, but you're bringing David to me." And they find out that there's a a you know, bunch of garbage, you know, garbage in the bed, you know looking like a person, and she tells the lie that you know, David threatened to kill me if I didn't help him. just what, just what David, uh, King Saul wants to hear, you know uh, that's how much David hates you know he, he's threatening my own family now. he's threatening his wife. <laughs> That just proves to me that he's evil. So that herd lie played right into his hand. And now we see David is not that much more honest because let's look at his plan. And David said, in verse 5, unto Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the king's at the king's table, but let me go, I pray, and hide myself in the field the third day at evening. And if your father will all miss me, then you say, David earnestly ask leave of me that he might run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all his family. And if you say it is well, my servant shall have peace, but if he is angry, then he shall you shall know that evil is determined by him. Alright, now, we don't know that there's not a, a, a festival over there, but David has no intention of going home. All right? There's no intention to go home, and now he's having Jonathan lie for him. Uh, you know, there's a the big problem with David with integrity at some points in, in time. You know, as great a man of God as David ends up becoming, he has problems, and we see his problems all through his life. He's got great walk with God. He follows God, but he's not above twisting truth. (laughs) Okay, And I believe there probably was some kind of sacrifice his family was going to have, but I don't think he intended whatsoever to go go to Bethlehem because he's going to be there three, three days later waiting, and it just says he hides himself. And this is something that we need to be very careful of, how easy it is to bend something that we think is simple. And a lot of people bend the truth, and this is broken truth, this isn't even bent, this is, this is completely broken, but how many times do we easily tell a lie? Just because, you know, we'll tell our kids, don't, I don't want you to lie, and if you tell the truth, you're in less trouble, and yet we as adults sometimes are just as bad as our kids about not quite telling the truth. Uh, I can remember being told when I was younger, you know, Well, go answer the phone, and if they want me, tell them I'm not here. After my dad got saved, he got a little better at it. He actually stepped outside. (laughs) Okay. Still twisting the truth, but at least he wasn't in the house. But that's the way we think sometimes. How can I make this almost be true? How can I twist this so I'm not fully lying? David is doing this here. Michael did it the previous chapter. We need to be so careful of let our yea be yea and our nay be nay, you know, and speak the truth, do things that that are of integrity. Because it's so easy to cut corners and do things that are just a little bit off. Well, you know, I didn't actually steal, I I asked to borrow it. I know I don't intend to ever return it again, but I just, I borrowed it and they said I could borrow it. I just didn't tell them it was going to be a permanent borrow. Okay, and we justify so much of what we do. we justify you know well, you know, I can watch this show it, it it's close to not being something that's good. actually, it crosses the line in several places, but it's it's only one five percent of the show i can I can turn my turn my eyes when those parts come on. We make compromises, and we need to be very careful because we're encouraged. Whatever's pure, whatever's right, whatever's of good report, whatever, you know, and goes right down a long list, think on these things. And yet we will compromise in so many little ways. And if we as adults and parents compromise, our kids will compromise in bigger ways. It's amazing that our kids take any of our mistakes and they magnify them and take them deeper. You know, and we want to be careful about this. This is why it's important for us to turn to God. And be as wholeheartedly following him as possible so that hopefully our kids will follow us in that side of things. The, the good news when my dad got saved is he changed his whole life and it impacted the rest of the, the family in many ways. Then I got to raise my family in the same type of way and I've watched my kids starting out at better better in most places than I, than I did. And it's wonderful. The good side of things will also be replicated with our kids. But if we do enough fleshly, evil stuff, they'll pick those up. They will pick those up. And here David's lying. I don't know why. You know, he started out good. He started out like he was always you know, telling the truth. But you remember, what did his brothers tell him when he went to down to the battlefield? He goes, we know the iniquity of your heart, the naughtiness of your heart. There's something about David that his brothers knew. Now they may have exaggerated in the heat of the moment. But most exaggerations have some kernel of truth in it. You know, we look back at Joseph and his brothers. and most everybody always talks about Joseph being such a good man, and he really was. He followed God. But he had an arrogant streak in him that had to be worked out before God could use him. You know, who tells their brother that they had a dream that you're, my all, all my 10 older brothers are going to bow down in front of me? You know, uh, you know. It takes a great arrogance for the, for the little guy to be able to do that. Now, his father helped him, of course, being his favorite son and all of that. You know, he helped build this arrogant streak into him. But, you know, each of these people and all people have a problem in their life that God has to work out. And God is good at bringing us to work out our problems. You know, whatever it might be, God will say, okay, this is a problem in your life. I'm going to keep giving you this until you finally let me crucify it. And we get the same problem over and over. How many of us have fallen for the same thing over and over and over again because we don't let God crucify it? And God's saying, well, you're going to keep failing at it until you let me take it away. And you know, it's so easy when we finally get that place where we give it up and say, God, you can have it, and he takes it away. It's wonderful. Uh, We've been singing the song, uh, You Say, and one of the lines I like in it, It's the last verse. It says, you have all my victories and all my failures are yours. We need to be to the place where we give God everything about us. All of our victories, all of our failures are his. And when we get to that point, then we're humble enough for God to use us. Now, we won't stay that way in all the places because eventually we will have something that we're just not ready to give up to him. And you know, sometimes our successes are harder to give up to God than our failures. Because a lot of times we want the, the successes to be ours. Well, oh God, look what I did. God, you're just so lucky to have me. Look at, look at all these things I can do for you and I can bring to you. And God said, you wouldn't have anything if I didn't give it to you in the first place. And we need to get to the place where God, thank you. You gave me, Jesus told the parable of the servants where one was given five talents and he doubled it, Another was given two talents and he doubled it. Who gave him the talents in the first place was the master. God gives us everything we can use for him. And we've got to be able to understand, any victory I have is his. Any failure I want to give to him anyway. It's easy for us to want to give him our failures. God, I keep messing up in this area, you can have it. But we need to also be ready to understand the victories are his as well. I'd have nothing if it wasn't for him. And we've got to get to that place where everything belongs to him in my life. And then when we get to heaven, he's going to reward us for for eternity, and we won't have to give those ones back because they'll be the reward for for eternity. And God is going to give us everything. We are sons and daughters of the mighty king of the universe, which means everything belongs to us too. It's an amazing thought. We need to really get to the place where we hear God's words and we hear his truth and we say, God, it is true, and I accept it. How much do we have? Everything. How much of the spirit do we have? All of him. How much authority do we have? Every bit of authority that Jesus had. What limits it? Us. (laughs) Just not accepting God for what he says. How many times have I said something like, something is easier said than done? I'm going to stop saying that because it means that if God says we can do something, we need to believe it. And if we believe it, it's true. It's true whether we believe it or not, but it will be true in our life when I accept and believe it. God gives us the power to fulfill life. He has made us perfect. He has made us saints. And yet we look at ourselves and say, God, I'm not perfect and I'm not a saint. Quit lying to yourself. God says you are. And if God says you are, who are you to say you're not? God calls us perfect. Now we know that we have a hard time walking in in that perfection, but God says we are. And if we would just fully believe it, truly believe it, and and live out what he says we are, what power there would be for us, what a way to walk it would be. he gives us the power to share. You know, we look at this last chapter, and all of Saul's men that he sent to go, go capture David and Sam, Samuel ended up prophesying. I can tell you one thing. They weren't wanting to prophesy. Saul was not wanting to prophesy when he got struck with, the, struck with prophecy. This case is they, God overtook their free will for a period of time and said, no, you're not taking my servant, you know. God wants us to turn over our free will. What is it that you want to see God do in your life? Expect it. Talk to him. Be ready for the test. Because the test will come. God you say I'm perfect. Get ready for the temptation right in that area that you have the problem, biggest problem in. We're only perfect in him. We have power in him. We need to stay in him for all things. And when we're in him, nothing can stop us. What can separate us from the love of God, Paul says, neither height nor depth nor width nor, nor uh, pre- principalities, nothing can separate us from God as long as we stay in him. Now we can temporarily try to walk away from God, but even then he is with us. Okay? He does not ever completely abandon us when we're his child. He'll let us walk off of you know, it's just like us when we have a young child. We don't let that child get very far from our sight. We're going to be, whether that child knows we're watching them is a whole nother story. But we're watching that child if we're doing our, doing our job right. God is right there watching us saying, okay, I'm going to give you a little bit. You think, you think you want to be independent? You think you want to be off on your own? I'll let you walk 10 or 20 feet away, but I'm right here. I'm right here. Nothing really bad is going to happen to you. The love of God for us is so stupendous. David hears lying, and he convinces Jonathan, and I don't know why Jonathan agrees to this, <laughs> to lie to his dad. <laughs> Just, uh, David has some influence over people, and this is something we need to be careful of because there are people in our life that have influence, whether positive or negative. In our kids' life, and our grandkids, and our nieces and nephews, there are people in their life that has influence on them. Now we can't completely dissolve these people from our life and we cannot keep them out of our kids' lives. All we can do is teach people to do what God desires and then play with it. And the same thing with those people that had influence in our life. We need to go, God, if they're not a positive influence, I need you to help guard me against them. I need your help. And it could be family members, it could be your best friend, it could be co-workers, it could be any number of people that have these influences on our life. And we need to be able to say, God, I need you. And this means I spend time in his word. I spend time listening. I spend time praying and saying, God, guide and lead me. Help me when I get these people that just seem to have influence. And all of us can think of somebody in our life that has influenced us, good or bad, Hopefully, hopefully more good than bad, but we know that there was those people that influenced us toward bad, especially when we were walking in the world. You know, you're really full of people that are keeping you from, from following God at those times. But you know, we need to be very much aware. David has this influence. Now, I don't know if he told Michael to tell him this lie or, and now he's telling Jonathan, but you know, this whole thing, you know, hey, if your father misses me, when David said, Jonathan tells him, your place will be empty. My father will miss you. Have you ever had somebody that if they're not there, you, ju- you, you just know they're not there? I can tell you in the church, there's people that when their seat is empty, I know they're missing. Now, we have a small church. So it's real easy to know when somebody's missing. That. But even in a larger group, there's certain people that you just you expect them to be there. And when they're not there, it's like, I wonder what happened to them. This is what Jonathan's telling David. Your seat's going to be missing. Now, we only get four people listed at this banquet, and I'm sure there were more. Okay? But David's seat was a seat of honor and authority, so his seat would be very easily noticed. And Jonathan's absolutely sure that his dad's going to miss him and say, you know, hey, what's happening? He's not going to have a problem with it. David, on the other hand, is absolutely sure that he's going to be missed, and and it was because he wanted to throw another spear at him. Okay, uh, and so we see this little bit of a battle going on, but you know it is true. There are people in our life that we miss them if they're not present, for good or bad. Sometimes we might be happy that they're not, not there. We're at the family Thanksgiving dinner, and and Uncle Benjamin is not there. Oh, I'm so glad he's not here. He always causes trouble. You know, or Aunt Martha's not there. You know, she's always trying to. You know, get under everybody's skin. And there's other people like, oh, I miss this one. You know, we need to be able to, number one, be ourselves—the person people want to miss. Nothing's worse than being the person nobody wants around. And that could be something if they don't want you to be around. I hope it's because you talk about God too much. <laughs> okay, that they don't want you around. But you know, not that you're just being negative. And so we have this little thing going on. You know, David saying, your father's going to miss me, but it's because he wanted to throw a spear at me. And John says, my father's going to miss you, but he's going to miss you for all the right reasons. Uh, all right, verse 8. Therefore you shall deal kindly with your servant, for if you have brought your servant into the covenant of the Lord with you, notwithstanding, if, he be, if there be any iniquity in me, slay me yourself, that you should, but you should not bring me to your father. And David's saying, hey, if there is a real reason that I should, that I deserve death, Jonathan, you kill me. <laughs> you know, you might, you're my friend. You'll you at least honestly check it out and if there's really that much problem and I'm that bad a person and I've caused that much problem, you come and kill me. Now, of course, that's not going to go over well with Jonathan. You know, Jonathan didn't like that idea. And he goes, no, it's not going to happen. You know, we have this covenant. And, uh, and then he goes, you know, my father has evil, but I, you know, and I, if he has evil, I'll tell you that, that he has evil thoughts about you. He's going to tell him, I'm going to let you know. And this is where true love comes in. True love will tell people when there's a problem. In the world's way of thinking, they will go, well, you know, I love you so much that I'm not going to hurt you by telling you anything bad. Well, in reality, that's not love. And we've talked about this. What parent is going to take somebody down to the big highway down here and just say, okay, kid, you go play in the road for a while because I love you. If that's really what you want to do, you can go play in the road. You know, during, during, during rush hour, when all the cars are zipping along at, at 20 miles over the speed limit, <laughs> you know, well, I just love them so much, I can't tell them no. Well, that's not real love. Real love says, ah, oh, you're not going in matter of fact, you're literally, you're not getting anywhere close to the highway to play. You know, just get you back up here to chloride, seven miles away from the highway, and you can play all you want, but you're not playing in, in, in the highway. Love will tell people when something's not right. Because if they don't, that person's never going to change if somebody that loves them doesn't tell them. And good friends sometimes have to say things that temporarily hurt. You know, you've really been making some bad decisions. You're going down the wrong path. Well, you don't like me. I love you so much, I don't want you going down the wrong path. And it may hurt the friendship temporarily even, you know, if the person's not in the right mood. I had to do this to a friend of mine one time, and I I told him, you know, number one, I'm sorry that I haven't said something earlier, but I have to tell you this. And it hurt him. I could see it in his face. Called me back just a couple hours later and said, thank you for telling me. I really needed to hear it. But it was hard to tell him at first. And we need to be very careful about this. If there's something that must be said and God is really putting it on somebody's heart, we need to say it. But we need to say it in love. The most important thing is it has to be said in love because you can say things, you, you can say the same words with the wrong attitude and the wrong feeling and it, one can tear and put a dagger in somebody and, and twist the dagger around a little bit and the other one is loving pain. You know, just you know, and, and you all know what I'm saying when I say this. There's certain people who have said something to you that hurt because they're accusing and attacking. There's other, some person who almost with tears in their eyes saying, you know, I'm just so concerned because of this and, and I'm really concerned about this. And you can, may not, it doesn't make it feel necessarily any better at the moment you hear it. But at least you know, this person's caring about me. Don't like what they said. <laughs> it hurt. But when you sit back and think about it, you go, oh, it was useful, I needed to hear it. And sometimes that may take weeks to get there. Okay, I'm not saying it's going to be instant. You know, if you know that they love you and, you and God has been working on you in the first place, it'll probably be pretty quick. If you have any doubt that they love you <laughs> or God has not been working on your heart in that area or he's been working on it and you've been putting up big walls against it, it may be weeks, years before you're ready to accept that. And we need to be ready for that. If somebody doesn't want to hear us, we need to be ready for that. We've been going through Second Corinthians. The Corinthian church didn't want to hear from Paul. He loved them so much that he had to tell them what was on his heart about them. Whether they liked it, whether they accepted him, whether they were ever, you know, recognized him back in the church again, he didn't care because his love for them was, I want this to be you. And this is some place where we are in our day and age where, Parents are trying to be friends with their kids. Now I just want to be the friend of my kid because that's what everybody tells me I'm supposed to do. Well everybody but God. God says we're supposed to be parents. And there are times when we're parents that the kids are not going to like what we say. They may even say things like, well you hate me. You don't want me to ever have any fun. Well no I don't hate you and I want you to have lots of fun but I just don't want you to have the wrong fun. All right. And this is the way God is with us. And too many times we with God are the same way. God, you just don't want me to have any fun. God, you don't like me. You know, you're just just a killjoy, God. And God's saying, no, I want you to have the best. I don't want you to have this temporary fun that's going to hurt you. I don't want you to walk down this path that seems fun and leads to destruction. He goes, I have great plans for you. And we need to be able to be that type of person with those that we love. Sometimes that love is going to cause pain. You know, when I had to spank my kids and discipline my kids, I did not enjoy any bit of it. It never was a fun thing to go, go discipline them. But I also needed they need, knew that they needed it. And it was my job to do it. But it never brought me joy. And as I've told somebody, you know, everybody, you know, if you have joy in disciplining your kids, then you've got a problem. You've got a bigger problem than than that. If you have, if you enjoy hurting your kids and causing them pain, you've got bigger problems, because that's not discipline. God does not enjoy bringing pain upon us. He wants us to grow, and to go forward. But he knows sometimes that that needs pain in our life to break us. And as I said, true discipline brings in enough pain to make us not want to do it again. And God is very good at that. He knows exactly how much pain to to put in our life to keep us from doing something again. Now We as parents don't usually have that same ability. (laughs) We have to learn. All right, back to our story. Verse 10. Then said David to Jonathan who shall tell me or what of what if your father's answer answers you roughly so very quick question he goes i'm not going to be there how am i going to know the answer that your father gives you you know if he gives you too rough an answer you may be dead or you may be locked in your room or something and not able to talk to me this is basically what he's saying and jonathan said to david in verse 11 come and let us go out into the field and they went out both of them into the field and jonathan said to david O Lord God of Israel, when I have sounded my father about tomorrow, any time, or the third day, and behold, if there be any good toward David, and then I will send not unto you and show you. The Lord will do so, so much more to Jonathan, but if it please my father to do evil, then I will show it you. I will send you away, and that you may go in peace, and the Lord be with you, as he hath been with my father. And you shall not hold only while... You shall not only while I am alive show me the kindness of the Lord that I die not, but also you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, every one of them from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan caused David to swear because he loved him and he loved him as he loved his own soul. All right, so Jonathan says, you know, I will get you word. David, don't worry. I will get you the message of what my father's saying. He goes, and if I don't, I will, take, you know, to be, I will be the one at fault. You, you can come and get me. And then he does something very interesting here. He makes David promise again not to harm him. All right? He goes, David, when you, when you get up, you know, when you get your third, don't kill me. Now, it easy? that's the easy part for David to, to agree to, not to kill his best friend. is a pretty easy, easy promise. But we look at this, the so Jonathan made it even deeper than that. He goes in verse 15, but you shall not cut off your f- kindness from my family forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off all the enemies of David, everyone from the face of the earth. So he goes, when David, when you get into full peace, you're not going to kill me or my family. And that's a little tougher one. And we think this could be where the temptation really comes in. While there's battles and enemies and everything, Jonathan and his family are not going to ever appear as an enemy. When he's at peace, all of a sudden he could have an internal enemy and Satan can use that. You know, hey, you know, those guys over there, they're, they're just biding their time for you to get weak. You know, and Jonathan understands this and he wants to put David under a promise to not harm his family even mm-hmm. after he becomes king. Again, David has no problem with this. He loves Jonathan. He's going to prove it out later when Saul and, and the children are, are killed. David goes out and he says, is there anybody left in Jonathan's family that I, can, that I can bless? We're not there yet. We won't be there for quite a while. But is there anybody left? And they said, Jonathan had a son, Meshivah Thef. He's lame in his feet because when the nurse was trying to get him away from the, the purge, they, she dropped him and he broke, you know, probably broke you know, bones in his body that never healed. And David says, okay, bring him here. Now, poor Meshiveth probably thinks he's going to be killed. And he says, you get to live in the palace. You get to eat at my table. Why? Because of your father. Because of the promise I made to your father. What a beautiful picture we have of our relationship with God. God made a promise to Jesus that he was going to have a bride and that his bride was going to have everything. And because of that promise, we get everything. We need to really get to an understanding what we have in Christ is everything. We live as beggars spiritually and everything because we don't want to accept God's word about us. Now, when God tests us, we usually fail. God also knows that he can't can't bless most of us with money because we wouldn't use it right. If we could, we'd be rich. Plain and simple. If we could use God's money for his kingdom correctly, he'd give it to us to use for the kingdom. Most of us would end up using the bulk of it on ourselves, and God knows that. And we look at this. So many people who get rich in this world instantly and quickly, there's a common thread that runs in their conversation that they wish it had never happened to them because it made them so miserable. And everybody goes well I'll, I'll take that chance. 99 percent of the people would never do any better than the, than the people who wish that it had never happened to them. biggest problem is you'd get friends that come out of the woodwork that want to help you spend your money. And because they're friends you'd help them. And you'd be like the prodigal son that had no friends after he had friends for well he had money he had friends and when he didn't have any money he didn't have friends. And anybody, from what I understand, who's ever gone to the bar with money and buys drinks has lots of friends up until the time they run out of money. And then they're lucky if anybody will buy them the drink. Okay? It happens, and it happens all the time. You don't need lots of money for it to happen. All you need is enough money to be exploited or enough possessions to be exploited for that period of time. God knows that there's many of us that couldn't handle it, so he doesn't give it to us. There have been people who could handle it and, and honor God and they've been really richly blessed. There's been several millionaires that gave God 90% of everything that they, they got. And they lived on 10% and they were still millionaires. Which meant they went through a lot of money. But they gave it to God. Now it doesn't mean automatically if you're willing to give God 90% you're going to be you know, blessed like that. But they had the right attitude. They had the right heart. God, I'm going to keep what you say you want and I'm going to give you the rest. What has God asked you to do that you're not ready to do? He's asking you to serve him and if we will just give up and serve that area, he will honor and bless in return. And here we see this whole thing. Jonathan says, David, I want you to not just me. I think Jonathan had an inkling that he was going to die with his father. Just a little bit. Because I think he realized the division in the kingdom that would happen if he lived. I really do think he saw that because he's going, you know, David can't be king while my father and I live. He probably understood that. So he's saying, you know, take care of my family. Don't kill my family. For my sake, don't kill my family. Let it it continue. And David lets them live. And he's even going to honor them. You know, gets gets blessed just because he's Jonathan's son. And at that time he had nothing. David's king. Meshivetheth had nothing. He has a a house and some fields and a few servants, but he has nothing really. So when he's called before David, it's like, okay, is David wanting to kill me? I'm one of the last left in Saul's line. Is he going to kill me? And he ends up getting blessed. And we, we see this whole process of God... Blessing us for Jesus' sake. What a blessing we have called to the king's table because of who we are in Christ. Not because of who we are. We're nothing. And we really are. We are nothing even if, you know, and there's nobody like this, but let's say somebody's rarely ever sinned and they've got good attitudes about everything. They're still nothing and undeserving before God because they have sin in their life. The worst possible person you could think of is nothing. They know they're nothing, but yet God says, you come to me and I'll make you everything, because it's all a gift of grace. We need to really start understanding the gift of grace that God gives us. We are special because God says we are. We are in Christ, and he says, that's my perfect child. I can't even fathom that in many cases. I can speak it and I know that it's true. But just the idea that God says we're perfect. That's his testimony of us because we're in Christ. This is my perfect child. And he sees us as we will be because he knows the beginning from the end and he knows what we will become when we get our glorified bodies. We will be perfect. So when he says we're perfect, that's what he's looking at. When he's given us our glorified body, but he sees us that way now. We have this problem that we walk in a time frame where we don't understand how God can say we're perfect. But he already says we are perfect. We need to just be able to accept, God, I want to live the way you see me. Help me become what you see me. And just learn to walk in the spirit. Walk in accordance to what he says we are. And we've got several songs that do talk about just that. You know, God, when I don't feel I'm strong and you know, I think I'm weak, you, th- you say I'm strong. When I think I'm alone, you say I'm, that you're with me. There's all kinds of different songs that we sing that talk just about that. We have got to quit lying to ourselves about what we perceive as facts and walk in faith. We have two things that will lie to us. One of them is facts. Facts will lie to us. Satan loves to come to us with Facts. Well, you know, last week you did this, this, and this, and you don't deserve to be with God. And you're going, you know, you're right. You're absolutely right. I don't deserve, but I've, I've repented, and God has forgiven me, and it's under the blood. Always remember faith. What God says is true. The other thing that, li- that lies to us all the time are our feelings. Now, feelings are there. They're real. Okay? You know, but we need to be careful that we don't put our trust in in Our feelings because feelings lie. We've got millions and millions of people who get married every year on feeling. I feel like I'm in love, I'm going to get married because we just love each other, and this feeling will last forever. And three days into the honeymoon, you start getting reality when that person's not as, as handsome or, or pretty as you thought they were in the morning. Uh, they have a few bad habits that, that you just can't, that irritate you. And all of a sudden, your feelings go right out the window. And that is when it comes down to, have I chosen to love this person? And am I going to fulfill the vow that I made before God? Most of our world doesn't do that. You know, I think we're up to 60 or 70% divorce rate now in this country. And it's ridiculous because they're getting married on feelings. As soon as those feelings are gone three days later, they're ready to get divorced. Instead of saying, I made a promise before God and I chose to love this person. I want everybody to always realize that true love is a choice. God loves us objectively. That means he says, I'm going to love you. And until he says he's not going to love us, he will love us. And the good news is, God doesn't change his mind. So he will always love us. Because he says, "I, I will love you. His love is objective. That's what agape love is. It's, it's unconditional love that's objective. doesn't matter what somebody does or doesn't do. I have chosen to love. Marriage needs to be made on objective love. Yes, I hope I have feelings. I should have some feelings toward that person when I'm getting married. But I should also have an objective love that I have chosen to love this, people, people, this person no matter what. And hopefully they have that same kind of love for me. Because otherwise it's not going to hold out. If it's not objective, I've chosen to love. When we have those hard times when the feelings aren't there and they're being, they're being obnoxious and getting on our nerves, we're not going to stick around. God says, I choose to love you. Jesus says, I choose to love you. And his love took him to the cross where he hung on the cross when he had all the power to say, Father, they're not worth it. Do you realize at any time Jesus could have said, Father, they're not worth it. I'm coming home. And it would have been no worse off for doing so. God, I just don't love them well enough. You know, Father, I don't love them well enough. They're, they're a bunch of nuisance. They're a pain in the neck. They put me on this cross. It's caused me a lot of pain. And I don't want to be here anymore. But his love kept him on the cross to die for our sins. And we put him there. And he could have at any moment said, that's it. We're done. Just send them all to hell. We'll, still, we'll go somewhere else and we'll start all over again. God, you know, Dad, just, we'll just send them all to hell. They're not worth it. And yet that's not what he did. His love held him to the cross. How many times do we not talk to people that deserve to be talked to about God or don't deserve to be talked about God because we perceive that they don't deserve it? Oh God, they're just so bad I don't want to talk to them. You know God, it would really, really hurt my feelings if you just took them to hell anyway. When we're not talking to people about God, that's really what we're saying about the per- people. If we're not willing to share the gospel with them, we're really just saying, God, just send them to hell. It's where they deserve to go anyway. Just, just send them there. I don't care. We need to be careful about that. God's love reaches out. And because he's put that love in us, we need to be able to reach out to people and say, you know, you may not like what I'm going to say, but I'm going to tell you it because the alternative is hell. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry. If you never talk to me again, I'm sorry. But, you know, I heard a message one time about the white throne judgment where people were standing at the white throne judgment and people would, standing before God would look around at the witnesses, the Christians, and see somebody they knew and go, why didn't you tell me about this? The last thing we ever want to have somebody do is say, why didn't you tell me? You know, eternity is a long time. We're worried about having somebody mad at us for this, for this short period on earth. But if we don't share the gospel with them and give them the opportunity, they may face hell for eternity. David and Jonathan are making a covenant and Jonathan's saying, take care of my family. Take care of my family, David. I want you to promise me you're going to take care of them. I, and I really do think he had this idea he wasn't going to be around. You know, as, as thick as he was on different areas on this, I think he understood, I can't be around if David's going to be king. Because if he was, the kingdom would have been split. You would have had this, the group that followed Jonathan, whether he wanted it or not, and he would have had the group following David. Because Jonathan, remember, Jonathan's a military leader in and of himself. The people like him. He's successful when he goes to battle as well. It, it would be a big problem if God didn't kill Jonathan. Jonathan, at the same time, he killed Saul. And I think that Jonathan understands that. As much as he wants to see his friend take the kingdom, he understands that it won't ever happen that way. We need to be ready to say, God, whatever. What are we willing to go through so that somebody can hear the gospel? What are we willing to give up? Do we have to be right in everything we do? Or are we willing to surrender and say, God, I will be used up completely for this. Paul at the end of his life says, I have poured out my life. I have been abused. I have been used so that you can hear the gospel. And he goes, I don't regret it. What are we willing to do so that God can be lifted up? What pain would we be willing to go through if somebody else would become a Christian? In one of the letters, Paul said, I would be willing to go to hell if Israel would be redeemed. Now I don't know that I've ever had been willing to do that. I haven't got that much love in my life for anybody yet. Okay. Moses said the same thing to God, you know, say, God take me. I'll go to hell if you will just keep your people. That is love. And in both cases neither per, neither group that they were willing to do that for deserved it. You know, all these people are always getting on Moses's case. It would have been so easy for him to say, "Yeah, oh, God, just kill them all." You know, let's start all over. You know, let's get rid of all these, these lame brains that are, that are causing so much trouble. Paul, being persecuted by his fellow Jews, saying, God, I would willing to go, I'd be willing to go to hell if you would just take them to heaven. What are we willing to go through? What pain would we endure if somebody else would go to heaven? How many martyrs died so that others could go to heaven? If you've read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you'll find out that there's thousands of them. There's thousands of people who died, but thousands who have come to Christ because they were willing to give up their life. What are we willing to give up? Our life? That's fairly easy for a lot of people. How about your reputation? I had somebody get extremely upset because she perceived that her reputation had been harmed. And it's like, why? Why? you're not lifting up Christ at this point. What if they come to Christ because of that? Now if you did something to cause your reputation to go, don't say it was for God. (laughs) But if you lose your reputation living for God, praise God. We need to be really able to get to the point where God whatever I have is yours to take and use. Whatever it is. And we need to be very careful of that because sometimes God may ask. Johnny Erickson Tata, you know, Christian at 17 years old, broke her neck, became a quadriplegic, wanted to die. But now, if you know her story, she is famous in ministry to the handicapped specifically. She makes wheelchairs and everything for people in countries that, you know, they recondition wheelchairs and send them around the world. Would she have had that heart if she hadn't had those things happen? I doubt it highly. If she had been Instantly healed of her broken neck and she'd have been a story for a couple years and then nobody would ever remember her. But God has used her circumstance to bring her. What are we willing to give for God? What is precious to us? She was an athlete and God took away what was precious to her. What are we willing to give up for God to lift him up, to allow him to be lifted up? and we want to be able to be this way. Jonathan's ready to let let go. Like I said, I really think he understood he had to die for David to get the kingdom. And yet he was ready to let his best friend have the kingdom even if it meant his death. And so we need to really think about this. What am I ready to give up for God? And I would encourage us, we need to pray that. But be ready because he's going to take away whatever you think is precious and give it to himself. Now, he may not take it away permanently. In Job's case, he took everything that Job thought was precious and then returned it to him. Johnny Erickson Tata lost everything that she thought was special, but God gave her so much more in the the long run. Not that her life's perfect. If you listen to her testimony, she's the first one to tell you it's not perfect. And it has been hard, and she still has hard times. And when we walk with God, life is going to be hard. Always because God is, says, I want you to keep growing. God doesn't want us to stop growing. He wants us to continually grow with Him all along. When I ran businesses, I kept raising the standard, you know. My, my, my stores ran well, and I'd raise the standards, and I'd raise them, and I'd raise them, and I'd raise them. Why? Because I wanted everybody to get better. I didn't want people just to say, okay, well, we're, we're at an okay level. Let's just stay there. Or we're at an excellent level. Let's 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 set the standard for the company. What are we going to do for God? Are we going to let him keep raising the bar for us? He's going to. Whether we want him to or not, he's going to keep raising the bar and say, okay, I want you to excel. I want you to move forward. I want you to get stronger spiritually. I want you to get stronger in the witnessing. Whatever he's called you to do, I want you to do better at it and be ready. Be ready for the challenges because God is going to keep challenging us. If we stop taking the challenges, we start going backwards. It's been said there is no standing still with God. You're either going forward with God or you're going backwards away from God. There is no standing still because the world is going to sweep us away if we're not going forward with him. So we want to, my challenge for us is let's pray. God, what is it you want me to give and be ready to give it? And I don't know what it's going to be for each individual. It'll be different for every single person. But God is going to say, I want this. And I'm going to tell you right now normally it's going to be the most precious thing that you think you own. <coughs> God's saying, are you willing to give it up? Are you willing to give me the, your most precious thing? And usually our most precious thing isn't necessarily the first thing we think of. <laughs> it's going to be something that God knows. And He's going to say, I want, I want this. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your love and care. Lord, we ask that you guide and lead us. Lord, help us to be ready to accept the challenge of you taking our most precious possession and making it yours because you'll give us so much more than you take away. And we just thank you in Jesus' name, amen.